Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Briggins International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefeller. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. In any workplace, the soccer fans are sure to be well acquainted with Uruguay. In addition to belonging to the very select club of countries who have won the World Cup twice, a steady crop of new Uruguayan superstars means the Oriental Republic's name comes up often in chats between futboleros. But football fans are not the only group that views Uruguay with interest. Cannabis lawyers and business people do as well, due in large part to the fact that the country was the first in the world to legalize recreational cannabis. It was under the leadership of legendary president Pepe Mujica. In 2003, Uruguay enacted law 19,172, which regulates the production, marketing, and consumption of cannabis while promoting information, education, and prevention of cannabis use. As the bill was debated in the Uruguayan parliament, President Mujica stated that Uruguay wished to make a contribution to humanity and help steer Latin America away from more confrontational approaches to drugs. With us here today to discuss what has happened in intervening years is Rodolfo Perdomo, a Uruguayan attorney who specializes in criminal, labor, and administrative law. A graduate of the University of the Republic, Rodolfo has served as an advisor to the Ministry of Energy, Industry, and Mining, the city of Montevideo, Uruguay's parliament, and even the country's presidency. Welcome, Rodolfo. Thank you very much, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys, and thank you very much for the invitation. Rodolfo, we're very happy to have you with us, and especially to talk about international cannabis. It, it's as I was learning more about Uruguay's uh, experience and uh, and role in in really getting global cannabis started. I was absolutely fascinated, and I'm excited to learn more from you uh, since you've been on the ground in Uruguay. So, in your view, um, was Uruguay's emergence as a cannabis pioneer mostly a reflection of President Mujica's vision, or did other factors play a role as well? Well, Jonathan, I think we definitely owe that to a larger extent, at least, to former President Pepe Mujica and the courageous and determined vision he had. Beyond that, there were indeed other factors that influenced his decision for instance, various organizations in favor of legalization have always tried to spread the benefits that such legalization could bring. And at the same time, it is important to mention that the political party of President Mujica, left-wing party known as Frente Amplio, also provided strong support for that decision. But it wasn't easy at all to take and implement that decision. 
For instance, at the time of passing the law in 2013, about two-thirds of the Uruguayan population were against the legalization of cannabis. And just remember that the government party had about 55% of support in the, in the elections. In other words, even the voters of the Frente Amplio, the, the, government, the, the, the party of the government, were not in total agreement with approving the law. That's why I believe that the vision and courage of President Mujica in pushing the law was very important and ultimately it was a great decision which helped, I think, to reduce violence associated with drug trafficking and indeed promote health in cannabis users under a new perspective of risk and damages and not the confrontational one and also help to control the quality and dependency of the cannabis consumed of the population. And last but not least, of course, it opened up enormous opportunity for investment in Uruguay and a new way of international commercial insertion for the country. Rodolfo, in general terms, what is the legal situation of cannabis today in Uruguay? We, As we discussed in the introduction, and as you just uh, mentioned, we talk about uh, cannabis having been legalized in the country, but are there any important restrictions that we should keep in mind when when we talk about this legal regime? Well, the, the, there are some. There are some. I, I, I think it's 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 fair to say that in in general terms, uh, there are still some legal aspects to complete and improve regarding cannabis. Certainly, here in Uruguay, it is legal to plant and harvest cannabis and hemp, of course, as long as a proper license is, sustained, is obtained from the respective authorities. The industrialization or extraction of, of, of extraction of cannabis and hemp in Uruguay is also legal with, of course, the respective license in and also uh, it is possible to uh, have research projects regarding to cannabis. Well, but there are, yes, some bureaucratic and uh, administrative obstacles regarding the possibility of sale and export of cannabis, which have to do mainly with the certification of the respective drying process of the hemp or, or the cannabis. But in a sense, the companies of the cannabis sector are actively working with the with the present government to obtain the legal adaptations that the industry requires. And there is great willingness from the government to streamline these processes and, of course, to support the cannabis industry. And I think that, that good times are, are coming for the cannabis business in Uruguay. And I also believe that Uruguay has all the conditions to become a world hub in the production of cannabis, its derivatives and varieties, and also to add a lot of value to the industry uh, in the sense. I spend a good amount of my time consulting with uh, companies and individuals who are investing in cannabis businesses. And so I, I get a lot of uh, questions on foreign direct investment to the U.S. and also review uh, investment documents for people who are investing outside the U.S. in foreign markets. And so I'm very interested in knowing more about opportunities that exist in Uruguay for cannabis businesses from other countries, such as the U.S. Okay, well, well, the, the, there are there are plenty, there are plenty of opportunities uh, here in Uruguay, uh, uh, definitely. Uruguay uh, has been a country of immigrants, uh, and that's why I, I think it's a very friendly country with foreigners, and of course also with investors. 
First of all, uh, it is necessary to say that Uruguay is a country that grants great, great tax benefits and investment conditions to those who wish to those uh, wish to do so. Um, well, we we are a small, great country nestled between two giant or at least very large ones like Brazil and Argentina. So historically, we have needed foreign investment to be able to grow. And of course, that is increased in a globalized world like, like the one we're living. Additionally, Uruguay has, I think, enormous economic and political stability unique in the region and I'll say in all of Latin America. Um, we also have a population with a higher level of qualification in general terms. That being said, in the specific sector of cannabis business, Uruguay has two great natural advantages, I think. Uh, first of all, a, a, a great and agile regulation which uh, eases investment in cannabis business. And also we have a, a great and long, enormous agricultural tradition with probably one of the best soils of the world. That's why I, I think that we are a perfect country to receive investments in cannabis. And I believe that this industry can give Uruguay a very important international insertion in the coming years. And the whole industry is betting uh, along with the government to that. You mentioned that when cannabis was, was legalized, there was considerable opposition to, to this move. Could you say that in the years since then, the support for this legalization has increased? Um, related to that, is, is there a risk that at some point in the future, there could be a, a, a change in, in public support and that perhaps the, uh, the current environment could become more restrictive uh, regarding cannabis? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, uh, yes, effectively, the, the, indeed, the support that the law had when it was proposed, discussed, and approved was very low. Around two-thirds of your of your Wayans were against it. But from their own, the population has seen that nothing bad has happened with the law. But on the contrary, it has had positive effects in general terms, in addition to opening, of course, a new industry for the country. Uh, for instance, the latest surveys that have been known on the matter reveal that this percentage of disapproval has been constantly decreasing and would be around 40% now, while already, for instance, in 2018, and for the first time, that percentage of disapproval of the law was slightly exceeded by the percentage of approval of the law, which is quite important. Regarding, regarding if there is a risk of moving backwards, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. In fact, this year, there has been a change of government here in Uruguay, and the incoming government is from a political tendency opposed to the former one, which has been governing, governing the fifteen and the last fifteen and interrupted years, and nothing has happened. But instead, the government, 
the, 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 of the income government has already expressed its interest in supporting the cannabis industry. But there's even more. There's one fact that is highly illustrative, I think. Two cannabis-related laws were passed at the end of December last year. The law of, for the promotion of cannabis research and the medical and therapeutic cannabis law. And both laws were voted by all of the Uruguayan political parties. In other words, I would say that supporting the development of the cannabis industry in all its forms in Uruguay is a state policy that transcends political parties. That's why I think there's no risk at all of moving backwards. So can we talk for a minute about uh, Uruguay generally? I'd love to learn more about the of your darling industries, companies, um, and what uh, you know, foreign companies looking at Uruguay as a potential market, looking for a manufacturing base, maybe, or looking for partners. Um, what should uh, what should foreign businesses keep in mind when they are looking to South America? Well, that, that's a, that, that, that's a great that's a great question. Also, uh, as I said, Uruguay is an extremely safe and economically predictable country to invest in and due of the to, to the characteristic of, of its market with an uh, with an a medium per capita income but in a country with 3.5 million in, in inhabitants Uruguay is usually a very important gateway to Latin America uh, as a continent uh, it's, it is safe, reliable, with initially low levels of corruption for the Latin American average, and does not require large investment to enter. In turn, it provides uh, significant tax benefits for the investment, uh, and in fact, the present government has announced that it will deepen these benefits in the very next future. Besides that, Besides that, I like to say that you. Uh, I, I, I always like to say that in Uruguay, our our oil is our soil. Well, it, it, that may not be the, the best time to use that analogy, but probably in the near future it will be. But what I mean is that Uruguay offers great investment possibilities in all the business related to the agro-industrial sector. Naturally, too, real estate is usually a good investment. Just to give an example, the average price of a hectare of your oil field has increased tenfold in the last 15 years. Therefore, anyone who has made an investment in this regard will surely feel very satisfied. And finally, and this this is really related with the with the with the. The Uruguayan situation for the next years, Uruguay is going to need a, a very important investment in infrastructure and housing in the coming years. And tax benefits, the, the, the government also has said, will be granted to whoever does that, that, that investment. So that will be an important investment area to consider as well. And I cannot fail to mention that logically in the next year, I think the Uruguayan economy, like probably the rest of the world, is going to face significant financial needs, which is why many established companies, very profitable and serious ones, could offer investment opportunities that could certainly give great returns in the very near future once the world situation stabilizes in some some way. 
Rodolfo, this has been a fascinating conversation, um, and we could we could certainly go on for for much longer. And 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 I do hope that we are able to have another conversation before too long. However, before before we go, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, about what you are reading or listening to at the moment. Uh, I, I think uh, our listeners, in, in addition to the content that you can provide here um, during during the, the the podcast regarding this issue, I, I think that th there is also an interest in in knowing what people like yourself, uh, people um, who are doing interesting work in other in other countries, um, are, are reading and digesting. So, if if you wouldn't mind, uh, if you could share with us some of what you're you're reading these days. Well, thank you very much for your words, Fred. It's been a, a fascinating conversation also, I think, and I hope to have this conversation uh, in the near future whenever you want. It's been a, a real pleasure. Uh, well, uh, uh, nowadays I'm, uh, I'm reading um, Special Operations in the Age of Chivalry uh, from Yuval Noah Harari, the well-known author and more than author, mainly thinker. And, uh, well, uh, uh, regarding to that, I must admit that uh, while I'm a big fan of history, I knew very little about this particular matter. Honestly, I, I chose the book because simply be, simply because uh, uh, Harari wrote it. At, at the very moment, I read Sapiens, who, Sapiens which is wide known, uh, the, the book from Harari. I said to myself, you have to read everything this guy writes. And so I did it. I read Homo Deus and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century and love and really love both of them. Um, this book I'm reading is totally different. It is a precise and detailed historical investigation, but it makes you think how very specific and limited operations uh, and almost with a minimum, minimum cost, cost can have enormous effects even in the course of history. As you can see, as a good while, I like to think that with limited resources, with imagination and effort, and effort, you can do great things. You know, Rodolfo, as I was getting ready for for the for the podcast, I actually considered um, recommending an article, or, or sorry, uh, another podcast, I should say, uh, a podcast interview with Harari. In the end, I I chose something different, um, but I cannot. Um, Uh, lose this opportunity to to say that I'm also a, a, a very big fan of Harari, and um, I was, you know, almost by by pure chance uh, a few years ago, I was able to uh, take one of his courses online. This was right before he he published um, *Sapiens* when he was still uh, unknown. So, so I'm, I'm like one of those guys who, you know, he list, you know, I listened to the band before they became big. <laughs> um, but, but definitely when it comes to Harari, uh, I was, it was a wonderful opportunity because basically I was able to uh, listen to, 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 I mean, the, the course was really um, on the same topics covered in Sapiens, But it was in that format as a, you know, it was a, it was a university level course, basically. So he could go into, into quite a bit of detail. And of course you're, you're hearing the guy's voice, you're, you're seeing his expressions. I think, I think you put it, you put it perfectly. I mean, more than a, more than a historian, he, he really is a, a thinker. He has, um, 
incredible insight when it comes to 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 a lot of things. And I agree with you completely. You, you, it's important to read everything that the guy writes, even the uh, or, or or you know not just not, not just not just what he writes, but also his interviews. You know, um, because because there is really so much so much wisdom there. So thank you for that, um, Jonathan. What about you? I'm I'm going non traditional again because I'm finding the pace of one podcast a week a bit strenuous to keep up with one book a week, right? So this is a uh, this is a recommendation from YouTube. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Fred, but I have been a student of South Korean martial arts now for about six months. I'm, I'm learning Hapkido with my kids, and uh, and so I've been exploring more other kinds of martial arts. So I happened across this YouTube video uh, about a Muay Thai fighter. It's called this. So if people who are looking for it need to look for the greatest underdog story in Muay Thai, Yodecha Sityotong. And it's uh, it's only about 20 minutes long. It's a great documentary about his experience. He, he grew up in a, in a large family, but was physically abused by his father. And so he left home when he was seven years old and found his way on the streets and eventually found his way to a an academy where he was able to study Muay Thai uh, and he was very focused on, uh, you know, providing a home for his mother, you know, reconnecting with his family after many years when they thought he was dead. And then, uh, you know, he wanted to fight because he wanted to make money. And so he was willing to fight and fight and fight. And he um, has some fun highlights from some of his fights. And and so as someone who's an aspiring martial artist, I really appreciated the perspective I got on someone who was so, uh, so driven to, uh, to push himself. And I like to push myself physically as well as mentally. So I, I, tr- I like the connection of, uh, of seeing what other people can do with their bodies. I think YouTube is a great, is a great outlet for that. I love, I love seeing uh, what the amazing things that people can do. So highly recommend it. It's only about a 20, 22 minute video. So quick watch, but certainly uh, very inspiring. Well, for me, um, I, I have to admit, uh, Jonathan, I also struggle uh, with the pace. So often my recommendations are really um, second reads of things that I've read before. Uh, And along those lines, um, one of my friends recommended a New Yorker article recently by Evan Osnos, who's a great writer. And the the particular uh, article that, that, that I read recently, it's about us politics. It's really good, but um, that that's not the recommendation that I that I want to make. Although it's a, it's a great article, I actually want to dig back into the the Evan Osnos archives. He he used to write uh, extensively about China. I think he was actually uh, based in China for for a while. And one of the one one of the pieces that he wrote that um, stands out uh, to me is is called. Um, or titled The Grand Tour. And if you Google Evan Osnos, The Grand Tour, you'll you'll find it. But just in case, it was published on April 11th, 2011. So it's actually, it's almost, almost uh, 10 years uh, old at this point. But it's basically um, what, what he did, he actually joined uh, a, a tour group, a Chinese tour group as they toured uh, Europe and sort of wrote um, about the experience and what what that revealed about uh, views of the world uh, 
commonly held in China. It's it's a fun read. Um, so the, the Grand Tour and a little bit like with uh, Harari, um, pretty much anything that Osnos has written will 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 be sure to please. So so that's my recommendation. Um, I guess uh, it's time to to thank Rodolfo once again. Fascinating conversation. Again, we we really do look forward to to having you uh, on the podcast again soon. Sure, sure. On the contrary, thank you guys, and and I thank you also your recommendations. I must say, Fred, that I envy you with all my heart for getting the chance to to be in that course of Harari, and it must have been a a, a great, a great, a great course. And and I will and I will uh, take your recommendations of reading and on YouTube also, and it seems quite quite inspiring and and interesting recommendations. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business. And tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.